Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the recent surge in financial markets and the latest on the imminent rollout of a vaccine in the UK. We look at how investor optimism has swung this year and how emotions, positive and negative, can affect our investment decisions. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. I think we're now firmly into December and uh, we can start to see the signs of the festive season upon us. I'm speaking to you from my decorated sitting room. You might have visions of a very tastefully decorated, colour-coordinated Christmas tree. Sadly, you'd be wrong. The Eggers household Christmas decor style is somewhere between shabby and eclectic and at the far end of the spectrum from the John Lewis catalogue as my as my colleagues that we're about to speak to can attest to as they've seen they've seen the background in our video calls but we all need cheering up in a year in which we've gone through well waves of the pandemic globally governments have imposed unprecedented peacetime measures and where financial markets have had to grapple with the looming recession We've seen incredible policy responses and more recently, the really fantastic development in in vaccines has certainly helped lift the spirits from earlier this year. So to help investors that are listening through this continued uncertainty, today we're going to talk about the role of emotions in investing, how they impact our decisions. And to help explain this today, we've got Rob Smith back, our very calm voice of reason. And JP Yeagers are, well, equally calm and equally full of reason, but, but with a slightly different bias towards asset allocation. So JP, let's start with you, if, if I can. Can you just tell us a bit about the latest developments? You mentioned before that clearly the pandemic has been driving financial markets, but now we've got more positive signs around a vaccine, potentially rollouts being quite imminent. What, what do you make of that? What are you seeing? Yes, Nikki. In, indeed, we've seen very positive news flow and developments on the vaccine. In particular, the efficacy has been higher than expected. And, and even this week, we had the incredible news that in the UK, the, the medicine regulator has approved one of the vaccines, allowing the government to start a mass vaccination as soon as next week. Um, here we see that the intention is to start with the most vulnerable and with the higher age cohorts. And this will bring down the infection fatality rate, but it will take a bit of time still before most restrictions can safely be stopped. This is a great achievement by, uh, by science. And uh, yeah, we've also seen financial markets turn decidedly more positive since the US elections and starting focus more and anticipate the other side where we get out of this. So quite a shift in, in investor sentiment. Are you seeing that in the data that you look at? Yes, definitely. So early- Earlier this year, investors were grappling with with the lockdown measures and the precise economic impacts and the duration of, of, of the pandemic. And then we witnessed equity markets pull back more than 30% and high yield bonds uh, offering more than 10% premium uh, as investors were selling down their investments. Uh, here we did see that investor sentiment was very depressed. However, as governments and central banks came to the rescue rather swiftly, helping the economy with lowering interest rates and furlough schemes. We noticed this helped stem the negative uh, sentiment actually c- quite rapidly. Now, with the vaccines inside, 
we start to see investor sentiment is actually quite a bit more optimistic and, and even elevated on, on some of our gauges. Uh, we do see there, there is yeah, more optimism building in financial markets that is anticipating an impending cyclical takeoff when we go a few steps back towards normality. So, Rob, just from a behavioural aspect, the investment markets are often characterised as being, you know, calculated, dispassionate, very quantitative. Um, but the emotions there that JP talked about are, are quite normal, aren't they? I mean, given the swings that we've seen this year, it, it seems pretty pertinent to consider how emotions of investors interact with with the experience and, and what we see play out in markets. Yeah, in, indeed, Nikki. And, and needless to say, emotions obviously play a role in, in any decision making, whether, and I think this is the important thing, whether we're aware of them or not. Now, in periods of uncertainty, this is this is more true uh, because when we are in periods of heightened uncertainty, it tends to kind of follow that that there's increases in in, in stress, whether that's in the environment or physiologically within ourselves, and and stress tends to heighten our emotional state and narrow, more importantly, narrow our focus of attention. Now, when it comes to investing, you know, stress and and the stress that we see of of volatile markets and and, and economies. Um, you know, not doing so well tends to or can have the effect of shortening our time horizon, and therefore we're like more easily influenced by short-term news and, and things that are going on, even if actually you know the considerations we should be making are for the longer term. I think when we're in periods where you know, like we said, talk about heightened uncertainty, you know, and that stress comes, we have less time to really make considered decisions. So we we see sort of the sort of, like I said before, sort of the subconscious, the mental shortcuts that we're sort of programmed, if you like, to, to make at points. And we see that we're more susceptible to any of those biases that we might see in behavior. So one, one example to try and bring it to life is, I like to use is, is confirmation bias, which is really looking at where we tend to find information that supports the views we have. So if we start to form a view, whether that be on, you know, the direction of the markets or, you know, the economy and, the, you know, the two, obviously many people think those two kind of interlinked. So when we start to form a view on that, and that can be influenced obviously many ways, we start to suddenly only narrow and focus and find information that tends to support our view rather than challenge that because cognitively that's, that's quite easy. And as you know, there's more stress, the time horizons reduced, we're trying to make decisions quicker. We're more guided by the fact that, you know, it's easy to find that confirmatory information than, than go and explore and try and find stuff that, that maybe challenges us in our, in our views. So if you think about, you know, back earlier this year, it's kind of easy to see why, you know, you can start to form a view on, on the direction of the virus and the spread of that and how that affects the economy. And, and, you know, that can lead on to many, um, sort of assumptions and around how that's going to play out. And suddenly, you know, you're looking at maybe a worst case scenario, but the more you look for evidence that supports that, the more that worst case scenario starts seeming like maybe that's the more probable scenario. Um, and, and it's very then difficult to shake some of those views. And certainly not helped by algorithms that supply our news feeds on, on social media, right? Mm. That confirmation bias you just spoke about. Indeed. Um, Bit of a handy tip here, you know. It's it's really worth making sure that you follow people that hold alternate views as well from good quality organisations. I'd suggest. <laughs> <laughs> so everything you talked about there, Rob, makes a lot of sense, and and I suppose speaks to why it's it's worth taking a step back and perhaps gaining expertise or having access access to expertise. But 
Of course, even expert organisations are made up of people and people have those same stresses and, and behavioural biases, etc. So, JP, perhaps you could share with us a little bit about the degree to which the investment decision-making process that you lead is, is taking on board the kinds of suggestions that, that Rob comes up with, with respect to making sure that those behavioural biases are, are dealt with. Yeah, of, of course. And as, as Rob just alluded to, indeed, we're, we're all human and it's, it's, it's very natural to feel those kind of emotions. Uh, so there are a couple of things we do when we think about investments in, in where we take those things on board in our decision-making. First, in terms of our investment homework, uh, we use checklists. And, and this helps us focus on the important bits, hopefully a little bit more dispassionately, instead of focusing, for example, on the economic damage being done. Uh, this will also capture how much of it is reflected in asset prices and policy responses coming, where we have to interpret each piece of the puzzle while keeping a big picture in, in sight. Secondly, we pay attention to when this investor sentiment is swinging to, to, to either extremes. So this is often where history tells us we are best served to do the opposite. It's when we nearly see all investors are very pessimistic, and this is largely reflected then in asset prices. It often provides an opportunity to buy and vice versa because it's often so obvious from the new developments why things are very negative and very positive. We've often seen this with elections or natural disasters. And lastly, when we analyze markets, we tend to focus on two sides. So we consciously choose to debate the pros and the cons for each investment to ensure we have a balanced debate and avoid getting absorbed too much in a one-sided discussion or narrative. Very good. And you mentioned their risk. I mean, obviously, risk is synonymous with with investing and, and returns, very few free lunches, if any. But what's difficult about risk is that it's quite abstract and, and not particularly easy to, to define or to understand. With the swings that we've seen this year around investments, and it's potentially felt a lot riskier to be involved in markets this year than perhaps in previous years. What's the theory here, Rob, around whether in a time like this, where perhaps it's perceived as higher risk, are, are we expecting higher returns on the back of it? So I think it's, it's really important to understand that risk isn't necessarily rewarded on its own, uh, in its own, in its own right. So it's true that for higher returns, you have to generally be willing to accept greater risk. However, taking more risk doesn't necessarily uh, lead to higher returns. So, you know, there can be, I say investments maybe is, is a loose word, but there are very high risk investments that you can put your money into, which aren't necessarily going to deliver any value. So in, in the financial industry as a whole, we tend to see risk uh, sort of captured as, as volatility, which is sort of the ups and the downs of, of uh, the investment sort of price and returns as, as, it, as it goes through time. But risk as we like to say, is in the eye of the beholder. So meaning there are, there are different ways to, to think about risk and, and, and how we perceive risk. What we know from, from literature is that, and, and from experience is that we tend to be risk averse as a, as a species. So humans tend to find that uh, losses of a set amount feel much more uh, painful than the, a positive gain of the same amount feel, feel nice. So if I offer you a, a head's flip of a coin and a hundred pounds you win if it comes up heads and a hundred pounds you lose if it comes down tails, actually, you know, not, no one's really going to take that bet. You have to have a much larger reward, a much larger gain than the loss in order to tempt people into starting to make that, you know, that gamble. So 
we know that and we also know that people focus on losses or gains versus a reference point uh, more than more than sort of absolute values of wealth so what that means is rather than necessarily thinking about volatility like we said as, as the industry tends to we we actually think more about drawdowns um, like we've experienced this year in the markets and um, and they're actually more important for the emotions and for perceptions of risk um, and that's why we tend to to, to focus more on the on the downside swings than, for example, the, the, the sort of more basic up and down um, the volatility. And Rob, you mentioned the drawdowns. It, it, they don't sound good. Um, you mentioned a reference point. Can you, can you just help the listeners? What, what do you mean by drawdowns? Sure. I think it's a, a bit of a financial term. Yeah, no, indeed. Yes. Thank you for that, Nikki. So what we mean by drawdowns is, is basically the, the loss in value. From a from a point, so we talk about volatility as a, as a, usually as a percentage. So you know what's the percentage that that, a, that an investment is sort of moving up and down around its sort of uh, average return. Whereas drawdowns is more around you know how much is it lost. So if we look at investment markets over the earlier part of the year, we saw investment uh, equity markets you know draw down, basically lose from their from their peak about thirty percent in value. So it really captures the, the sort of negative side, if you like, rather than any positive sort of upward movements. Got it. Thank you. And and it's really interesting what you say there. I mean, as as individuals saving and investing for, for one's future, we might think quite differently about risk compared to how the industry defines it. As you said there, the, the pain of losses feels more acute to the the joy of of, of gains. So that leads me to to you, JP. What what does that do to our investment decision making process? Do we treat potential for losses and gains exactly the same? Actually, Rob makes, makes a very good point. If you look to risk, it often depends on how we define risk. So it could actually be in how much do I lose of my initial investments? It could be what's the risk of a company defaulting? Or is it just the ups and downs we see in, in, in asset prices? When we build portfolio for clients and we combine different assets, we actually apply what Rob just alluded to. So what we look at is we punish drawdowns or pullbacks in portfolio values much more severely than we reward gains. So we look at what is the risk of losing money on a portfolio level. Because instead of modeling the volatility, the week-to-week ups and downs, we tend to look more towards the losses and uh, yeah, try to, and we have captured this in the philosophy of how we construct uh, client portfolios. Oh, so so when you say punish, you're meaning that you don't give as much kudos, if you will, within within the process itself. It's not that you're you're literally punishing for bad investment decision making. So in a situation where we would have two identical portfolios with the same expected return or the same terms of risk, if we look at volatility, we would look at the portfolio where the the, the losses have been the least. So in, in, as, as in essence, in the choice between how we mix the different assets together, the experience of a loss in that portfolio is actually quite important. Got it. And it sounds like there's perhaps it's very difficult to, to take a sort of typical investor or, or group of investors, because what we're hearing is that people will react to risk and to volatility in, in very different ways. So how, how does that work when it comes to participants in financial markets who are everything from pension funds, insurance companies to, you know, the person on the street. That's a very good point, Nikki. And, and, and often you'll hear comments or read comments like the market is capitulating or the market is too optimistic. But of course, this is the mood 
uh, reflected by, by investors. Mostly, I would say there is a healthy dispersion uh, given the uncertainty there is with all future path. But in the extremes, there, there tends to be a tendency for investors to hurt. Very often we see it's so obvious why a certain news item is so positive or negative that all participants respond in a similar matter, manner. And that could potentially have asset prices reflect a little bit too much of that optimism or pessimism. And I think, Nikki, if I can just jump in, that's from, from my point of view, you know, we see you know, behavioral traits and biases, you know, they're not, it's not black and white. You don't either have them or you, or you don't. It's kind of a spectrum. And as, we, as I said before, you know, during times of heightened uncertainty and, and, and market instability, we see people tend to slide further down those spectrums. And that's where we see certain behaviors becoming like more prevalent. So what we see in literature is that we've, we have this sort of natural propensity to, to what we call herd behavior. So basically sort of follow each other um, and that social information of the actions of others uh, can have an outsized impact on our decisions when it's not necessarily uh, sort of an input we should be thinking about rationally. If we think back to earlier this year, for example, you can see that you know when markets you know start to form consensuses on on what's the outlook and what's potentially going to happen in in the future, um, you know it can often create this sort of herding behaviour and then and, and create these big shifts in. In markets, and that's why you know earlier this year we saw some very big downward moves in in very short succession, and then sort of some upward, significantly upward moves, recoveries as as well. Because I guess the environment you have where that herding is created, you can then have a uh, create sort of confidence and 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 some you know in 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 that well this consensus you know this opinion must be right because everyone's kind of then herding, and and suddenly if opinions start to shift just a, a little bit to some extent, when maybe we see external actions or, or such as policies from governments and these sorts of things, then then suddenly you can see these big swings as as the potential kind of overreaction at herding created is suddenly corrected very swiftly. It's, it's hard to stand against the tide, isn't it? And, and just on that, Rob, I mean, obviously, JP and the team have you there helping guide them with approaches that they can and should take. Is there a sort of particular hack or a, or a particular tip that you can give to listeners around how to try to overcome some of those natural biases or, or, mm. or behavioral aspects? I think I'd, I'd say two quick things. So one is we talked quite a bit about risk today and, and obviously the movements in the market. I think it's, it's important to understand that there can be sometimes a significant difference between what, what our perception of risk and how we're viewing and calculating the risk of something versus the reality. And this perception can be quite easily influenced by things around us, you know, such as, you know, the news stories we read, um, you know, the stories of others and these sorts of things. So you just have to think about, you know, travel and, and um, air travel and the fact that, or, you know, you see a couple of news stories about crashes of airplanes, they're going to they're gonna make the news because they're quite significant when they happen. And suddenly that's affecting your perception of, of how risky it is to travel on by, by plane. And actually, a lot of people perceive it to be far riskier than getting in a car because they see those news stories. You don't see the everyday stories about car crashes and accidents because there's just many more of them. But the reality is that actually traveling by, by plane is actually safer than roads in, in most countries. So, you know, investors need to be careful not to let their perceptions drive their decision making, especially when they can be driven by the short term 
sort of media and news flow where where really their their concern should be about the much longer term you know investment decisions and, and outcomes that they're they're trying to aim for and i guess the, the only other thing i'd say is just a bit of self-awareness is is really powerful for investors so just you know taking a moment to think about how you might feel during different periods and different types of market conditions and how that might make you feel ahead of time can be can be really useful because then it allows you to have a bit of a plan and make a bit of a plan and 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 that's what a lot of our managers and, and advisors here try and do is is have those conversations ahead of time. So when you get into these tricky times, you you've already thought about how it's going to make you feel and potentially what you're going to want to do, and you have something to look back on and, and help guide your decisions. Very good points there around having a plan and trying to stick to it, no matter what uh, the influences around you are doing. So, guys, thanks so much. That was really fascinating. And I know that for our listeners, just hearing a bit more about investment processes, including the behavioral elements will help navigate through what could well be some more volatile times ahead. So thank you very much. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.